authorization to military force, all of these foreign policy questions do very much have a political nature to them. It's the week of Thanksgiving, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. This week, we have NSI Senior Fellow Lester Munson doing a deep dive with Rachel Bavard, Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute and Fellow at Defense Priorities. Rachel has over a decade of experience in Washington, serving in both the House and the Senate in various roles, including as Legislative Director for Senator Rand Paul as policy director for the Senate Steering Committee under Senator Toomey and later Senator Lee. Rachel, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So uh, tell us about the Conservative Partnership Institute and what its goals are. So Conservative Partnership Institute, or CPI, as we call it, is a pretty new organization. It's a group that was founded by myself, Senator Jim DeMint, and then Ed Corrigan and Wesley Denton, all of us who worked in the Senate for different people at different times, but all of us who worked in the Senate. And it's not a think tank, but it is designed to focus on sort of the tactical and strategic elements um, of the conservative movement of the Republican Party that we we think tend to get overlooked. And so we spend a lot of time training uh, Senate staff, House staff on how to actually move the levers of government. And what I'm talking about here is Senate procedure, House procedure, really boring things that only really matter in D.C. But if you know how to weaponize the rules of the House and the Senate floor, you're going to get your policy across the finish line because it's one thing to have the best ideas. It's another to able to be able to sort of maneuver on Capitol Hill. So I spend a lot of time teaching those kind of skill sets to both staff and members themselves. As I recall uh, from my time in the Senate, there are like four people who actually understand how the Senate floor works. So it seems like you're you're in a pretty good market there. Like there's not many <laughs> other people you could go to to try and figure out how to get something done on the Senate floor. Yeah, we've cornered a market that literally no one cares about outside of D.C., but it is a good like it's what makes you powerful is is the ability to to maneuver in this space. And so um, we've had a really good response to it. And, you know, I teach five week courses now on things like the amendment tree and cloture. And again, things that will put everyone else to sleep, but are vital to people who really want to make change in Washington. Is filling the tree really filling the tree? Right. <laughs> well, right. Yeah, I know. That's the question. Right. The sort of conceptual nature of the amendment tree. I have to teach it like three times because the first time everyone's eyes just like glaze and get this panicked look. <laughs> so uh, you and I worked together uh, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee a few years ago. Uh, this podcast is a national security podcast. We like to focus on foreign policy and, and related issues. So tell us what your take is on the role of Congress in the making of foreign policy. So broadly speaking, I think Congress has completely abdicated its role. I think it actually has a muscular role in the execution of foreign policy, you know, underneath the, the you know, president himself, the, we, the Constitution does give the executive a fairly significant role. But, you know, the way that I approached some of the issues that we worked on together in the Senate was under Senator Rand Paul, and I was his staffer, and he and I were fairly aligned in this view that, you know, Congress should have a significant role in, in war making. Right in the ability, uh, the when when the country engages in in armed conflict, Congress should have a say. Congress should have a check, uh, whether it's through authorization of, for the use of military force or whether through its monetary support. 
you know, as the branch that has the power of the purse, Congress can assert itself very forcefully in this space in ways that it does not currently. And Congress also has, I think, a very significant oversight role on a lot of how our foreign policy is executed and what I think they've abdicated uh, in a very significant way as well. But <laughs> if you read anything I write about Congress these days, it's not it's not very favorable on, on any, any uh, aspect of Congress asserting itself and foreign policy is a significant one. So uh, when you were working for Rand Paul, I was working for Bob Corker, who, and they didn't agree on everything, but they had a pretty good working relationship, I thought, and uh, would make sure they knew what each other was doing. And I, and I think it was about the time we both started there. Jim Webb wrote an article, I think it was in the National Interest, about exactly this, about how Congress was abdicating its responsibility on declaration of war issues. We now call them authorizations for the use of military force. And we spent a certain amount of time working on those issues, even when the Democrats were in charge, and then uh, and then a little bit after. What's what's the uptake? Do you think on the Hill right now for the for the argument that you know that you're making, and that frankly I agree with, and that Jim Webb was kind of out there saying he was a Democrat from Virginia, conservative Democrat, but a Democrat. What do you think the uptake is for that with with Congress as it is right now? You know, they have very little appetite for it broadly speaking. I, I mean, the Congress generally tends to, it has taken this approach where they sort of defer to an expert, right? An expert comes out of the administration and says, you must do X. And they're like, well, okay, I don't know any better. And what I always thought Rand brought to the table and some of the other senators that are starting to do this as well is just an inherent skepticism of, well, why, right? Like why, why should we, and asking some of these questions you know, that I think are very in instructive and informative, because once you start pushing on, on some of these doors, you find out things that are a little bit concerning. Um, but broadly, I, I think that Congress is happy to defer this role. In, in, in many ways, they're happy to defer other roles because they don't want the accountability of having to vote on it and take responsibility for it. Um, you know, it's interesting, Mitt Romney recently tweeted about Trump Trump's desire to get out of Afghanistan. And he said, well, this is not an issue that should be decided by our politics. It should be decided by, you know, experts and policymakers and, and the advice of national security experts. And I actually think that that's the completely boneheaded wrong approach with all respect to Mitt Romney, because our politics is how the American people speak. It is how we express our preferences in self-government. So Authorizations of military force, all of these foreign policy questions do very much have a political nature to them because, again, this is how we express ourselves. And at the end of the day, it is the American people that should have a say in the wars that they send their sons and daughters to fight. And so Congress should represent that, I think, far more than they do. So I'm going to give you a real uh, fat pitch down the middle here. Uh, do, do you think it in 2016, the, the somewhat surprising, at least for the Beltway types, success of Donald Trump was based in part on exactly what you're talking about, that there's this sentiment among the American people that, hey, experts are fine, but you know you don't listen to them above what, we're, what we want to do and what we're going to support, and that it's important for us to reassert the fact that, hey, this is a government of the people and by the people. It's not by experts, and it's not for the people in office. This, you got to remember where you came from. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think you know Trump's election was very much the you know American people flipping a little bit of the bird to this expert class, rule by elite, you know, being finger wagged at from you know 
Mount Olympus and told, you know, how they should live their lives. It was very much a repudiation of that theory of government and one in which, you know, the American people said, look, we run this government. You are our representatives. It is a self-government built on consensus and you have ignored us. And I think in the foreign policy space, that's become very clear. You know, Trump was not a creature of sort of this orthodoxy in, in foreign policy circles. He, he, was, he was skeptical. You know, and he wasn't an expert, and I don't think he ever presented himself as one, but he simply said, why are we still at war 20 years later? Is this a good idea? And that, that I think, blew a lot of air into what had previously been a very stale room in Washington of how we approach some of these questions, particularly as Republicans. And I think people really welcomed it. And I think it's interesting, you're starting to see that on both sides of both parties in the sense that whenever these questions are taken up on the Senate floor, it's by people like it's bipartisan alliances of people like Senator Mike Lee and Senator Bernie Sanders, you know, like two, two opposite sides, you know, of either party sort of coming and meeting in the middle on this particular question. And so I think I, it is my hope anyway, that that approach sort of seeps toward the centers of the parties, because I think it would benefit us uh, in very, in very good ways as a, as a democracy, as a republic, um, and inform our foreign policy in a, with a lot more prudence than it has now. So you wrote a book with Senator DeMint called Conservative, Knowing What to Keep. Tell us about the book and why you wrote it. So this book was Senator DeMint's idea. And when he came to me, he said, look, you know, everybody's trying to say what conservatism is. Nobody really knows. Even conservatives don't really know what conservatism is. And, you know, I want to approach this question and, and sort of rearticulate conservatism for this moment, right? The Trump moment where everything is, is <laughs> kind of up in the air and everyone's grasping at what everything means. And he's like, but I want to do it to speak to this modern generation. Um, and that's why he wanted my help. He, I initially thought, I was like, oh, do you want me to go straight the book? He's like, no, I actually want you to write it with me, which is interesting. As you know, senators don't usually share their bylines. So, um, and it was a fun experience, but again, it was designed to sort of rearticulate the precepts of conservatism as they relate to this Trump moment, to this moment that we're, we find ourselves in, because we based the whole book around sort of Russell Kirk and Kirkian conservatism, which is you know one branch of conservatism. But Kirk very much was a proponent of the fact that conservatism is a series of principles, right? It's not a reflexive ideology or a set of policy prescriptions, and thus it is applicable and looks different in every moment. And so we really wanted to, to express what we thought it should look like in this moment. So you spent a lot of time in the book on domestic issues, social issues, uh, economic regulatory issues, not a ton of time on foreign policy or national security. Is there is there another book in the offing on those topics <laughs> or uh, maybe, you know, a chapter we'll see in, in some journal? What's your how, how do you extend that argument to the foreign policy realm? Yeah, well, I will say we put this book out a year ago and I like still need a break. So <laughs> I don't have any intention of writing another book soon. But, you know, I think when it comes to I think the, the fact that we emphasize so much of our domestic policy, I think, reflects my view of, of foreign policy in the sense that it shouldn't be what dominates our government. Like we have to engage overseas and we do. But our primary governing uh, philosophy, I think, towards foreign policy is one of forbearance. You know, right. We don't seek out monsters to destroy, but we destroy them when they present themselves. You know, it's not a, a, a um, threshold question of, you know, people love to tar people like Rand Paul or maybe myself as isolationists, right? That we don't ever want to engage overseas. And it's not that at all. I think it's more prudence 
right? It's saying, is this actually furthering the national interest? How significant is this threat directly to our American sovereignty? And at those points, you know, then you do take, then you do take swift action. And, and you kind of saw this a little bit in the Trump administration, right? Trump said, you know, I don't want any new wars, but hey, I'm going to take aggressive action against Qasem Soleimani, who I feel is a direct threat to our national interest. And he did that. And that was, you know, swift in and out, mission accomplished, done. Um, but it wasn't this sort of, I'm going to find something that's tangential to our military or our national interest and bog us down there for 20 years. Um, so I think that's what would best define, I think we're, a, to be honest, I mean, you tend to think everybody thinks like you, but I do think a lot of American people kind of have that approach, right? You have a very small cabal, I think, in Washington, D.C. that thinks we should be everywhere all the time. But I think what's more broadly reflected across the country is sort of a prudent approach. And that's where I think a lot of conservatives would, would define themselves. So uh, I, I totally get the logic of that argument. What do you what do you say when you know, agents of the cabal uh, come back to you and say, look, if we if we totally pull out of Afghanistan, it's going to be like the 90s after the you know defeat of the Russians there. The Mujahideen came into power and then we had 9-11 or look back at Iraq uh, when we pulled out in 2011. By 2014, ISIS had emerged. We had to go take care of ISIS. So how do you balance what you're talking about with you know, what sometimes is a real need to kind of be in a place and make sure bad things don't happen. Yeah. Well, I think I would, I, I don't think it's nearly as binary as that argument makes it out. It's like always like either or. We're either there, you know, nothing bad happens or we're gone and everything bad happens. And I just don't think that, I don't buy the logic of that argument, particularly because, you know, the Iraq example that people use, oh, well, you know, we left Iraq and then it became an ISIS stronghold. Well, a lot of the reason it did, it was that way was because we then meddled in Syria, right? And we sort of pushed everything over the edge. So these decisions don't occur in a vacuum. I do think that there are definitely trade-offs that have to be discussed. Like I don't, you know, I tend to present them as binary questions as well when they're not. Um, but I also think that the logic of that argument doesn't follow because, you know, anything bad can happen anywhere, right? These these things can grow anywhere. And so the logical conclusion of an argument like that is, well, we should be everywhere all the time to prevent anything bad from happening anywhere. And I just don't think the trade-off of that, you know, is worth it. Because again, these are all questions of priorities and trade-offs, right? If we, if we get out in some place and we think there's a risk, can we buttress against that in some other area that doesn't require troops on the ground? So let's talk about the, the rise of China. Right. Uh, the U.S. hasn't had a peer competitor in the world for, uh, well, since since 1989, really. So over 30 years, China's on its way there, perhaps. How do you think, based on on these Kirkian principles you talked about, that the U.S. should be responding to the rise of China as we're as we're seeing it right now? So I consider China. One of our, our I, I consider China our greatest economic and foreign policy adversary. I am very concerned about the rise of China. I think you could probably call me a China hawk and it would be accurate. <laughs> now, I don't want to go to war with China, um, but the threat I see from China is, is insidious because it is very much exercised with soft power. It's very much exercised economically. And I think the reason I'm so concerned about it is because I think the United States has been confronting China as sort of an economic ally for so long that we are just unprepared for the fact that you know, China uses its economy and its, you know, uh, businesses and its economic engagements as weapons, essentially. 
Um, you know, their companies are espionage activities. <laughs> you know, Huawei operating in the United States is not necessarily, I mean, it's a money-making enterprise, but it's also because they want to gather espionage in the United States. And we have just not been prepared to respond to that. And I think we're far behind uh, in that regard. And so I do really worry about the rise of China. You know, they are intent on being a great power uh, in a way that makes other, you know, removes our ability um, to, to, to be dominant. And I think that is something from a national security perspective and an economic security perspective we have to address immediately. So you mentioned uh, China using soft power. They've got this thing called the Belt and Road Initiative. Other people call it One Belt, One Road. I think it's some sort of insult to the Chinese. <laughs> I, mean, I don't quite get the logic of it. But uh, in any case, they're spending $20 billion a year around the world or thereabouts, probably more than that, uh, building infrastructure in developing countries, inducing uh, semi-corrupt regimes to, buy, to uh, become indebted to China, which gives them more leverage. How, how do you think we should respond? Is there is there an argument here for a more robust, soft power response from the United States? Yeah, I, I definitely think there is. I think a lot of it starts at home, to be honest, like how we treat China, because we are we are still engaging China as an ally like that. If we can't stop that, then we're going to lose everything else. And so so much, I think, of what Trump did was upend sort of the conversation around China because he was willing to use our, you know, trade agreements with China as weapons, right, to some extent, to sort of put China back on their heels. Um, you know, our financial policies that have really benefited China, allowing China to sort of manipulate our currency, he, he gave a lot of lip service to that without a lot of action. But I think those are some key areas with which we have to stop, start chipping away, I think, at China's ability to influence the United States and our economic direction more broadly. Because again, if we can't even get that right, there's no sense in trying to combat them everywhere else because they're already in our backyard. And so that's, I think, that I think is step one. So uh, one of one of the things Joe Biden talked about during the campaign uh, was multilateral institutions. He was very critical of Trump for pulling out of the World Health Organization. Uh, now, uh, presuming Biden takes office in January, uh, he's likely to put the U.S. back into the WHO. What's your What's your take on the overall value of multilateral institutions as a way to advance U.S. interests, uh, including challenging the rise of China? I tend to be very suspicious of multilateral institutions. Um, you know, I think that this the COVID-19 pandemic has been the biggest repudiation of the World Health Organization. If a, if the Ebola outbreak of 2014 wasn't already a repudiation of the World Health Organization, I just think the failure of the WHO to do anything at all has proved its worth, which is pretty much nothing. That said, you know, there is an argument to be made that abandoning participation in these organizations would just cede the ground to China. I don't think the WHO is influential enough to make that argument sound to me, but I do think it's worth taking them on in places like the United Nations, um, you know, in, in sort of other multilateral institutions, the World Trade Organization. Like, I don't think that that's benefited the United States that nearly as much as its proponents claim. Um, but China has been eating our lunch there. And, and if we were to actually step up and be aggressive and enforce, you know, WTO against or the you know rules against China and other violators, I think we could have an interest uh, in, in taking making China step back. But again, you have people in Washington that are committed to being partners with China being economic partners with China, 
Um, you have big tech companies who really want to work with China and be in their backyard uh, and sort of seed some of that technological prowess to the Chinese in exchange for the billions of eyeballs they have. And we haven't gotten over that yet. Like we, we are, that is the very real struggle, I think, with our, our China facing policy are those two areas, free trade and big tech, because there's a lot of people that really want to see, want to see us work cooperatively with China and not treat them as the adversary that they are. So uh, great segue, I think, to uh, economic uh, tradecraft, if you will. Um, and maybe let's take the, the China example and put it aside, because I think there's a lot of emerging common ground on exactly what you're talking about on China uh, from all the parts of the Republican Party and even a lot of Democrats. I, I suspect that's, that's, that's a nice growth area for bipartisan agreement. Let's talk about other areas the Trump administration has really used extensively two tools, uh, economic sanctions, both for to advance U.S. economic interests, also for corruption, human rights, uh, democracy issues, and also um, has used tariffs in a way that other some other administrations had used tariffs, not nearly to the scale President Trump has. What's your uh, again, going back to Kirkian principles, use, what, is, what is your thought on the use of these very um, kind of blunt force economic tools by the federal government as a, as a policy instrument? Yeah, this was, I think, a, a struggle for a lot of us who, you know, kind of were raised in this way of thinking, which is like the government should never use its economic power, you know, as a means of achieving certain political goals. <laughs> but I think, you know, Trump, I think, forced us all to reckon with the fact that, you know, in many of these sort of so-called free trade agreements, we were being taken advantage of by these other countries. He also forced us to reckon with the fact that our free trade agreements have had economic consequences, right? We were told that NAFTA was supposed to be great for the middle class and it would rehabilitate, you know, sort of the Rust Belt uh, area of the country. And it didn't. And a lot of those voters responded to Trump's message that it didn't. And so, you know, I think a lot of us are sort of, of grappling with, with this idea. But what I appreciated about what Trump did was that he said, look, you know, this is short term pain for long term gain in the sense that like this is not I'm not being ideological. I don't believe ideologically that tariffs are like good. Right. <laughs> I think that they are a tool towards an end of making America be treated more equally and better in the world. And that is something that I think, you know, actually should be in our in our toolbox. You know, I don't think it should be used frequently. I do think it has a lot of consequences, you know, and you're seeing that, um, you know, our ag industry sort of got wiped out a little bit when Trump took these uh, steps. But for a long time, it's been off limits. And I think a country that limits itself, you know, in how it's going to, to respond to being treated unfairly is one that will be taken advantage of time and time again. Okay, let's talk about uh, the other kind of big area, uh, the Middle East. Uh, the U.S. has been involved there uh, in, in multiple wars in the last uh, generation, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Kuwait, a lot of blood spilled, a lot of treasure spent, uh, perhaps some stability achieved. Uh, of course, the Middle East is still the energy source for our, at least our allies, as the U.S. has grown its own uh, energy sources. We're not as dependent on the Middle East, but our our allies sure are, from Japan to to Western Europe. What's your What's your hot take on 
how involved and the way the U.S. should be involved in the Middle East generally? We have an obsession with the Middle East for all the reasons that you just laid out, right? It's like the power proxy for like the entire world. Um, you know, I we are always going to be involved there. And so that's sort of the baseline. It's like, we're not going to be, we're not getting out. We're always going to have a foot there. And so the fact that we do, I think means that it's where real politic plays out more than any other region that I think I've ever seen. And so I think I've been actually kind of impressed with the Rubik's cubes that Jared Kushner put together. You know, I know there's been a lot of criticism of the, you know, whether or not those really represent new agreements or they're just codifications of, you know, common law that was already in place. But that is the sort of role I think the United States can continue to play is to sort of, you know, not be as ideological about, you know, certain areas and, and bring allies together where we can to, to build a bulwark of our interests. That is sort of my distorted hot take. <laughs> All right. I think it's, I think it's a good one. Uh, let's talk about Europe and NATO. Uh, President Trump, uh, you know, famously uh, complained about the contributions other countries were making via their defense budgets to the common common defense. Uh, what's your what's your net take on the value of the Trump administration and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? I loved one of my favorite parts of the Trump administration was when he addressed the burden sharing issue with NATO, like. I don't know anyone who has, has, has worked in foreign policy for even any amount of time that kind of wasn't happy about that. <laughs> Cause I think it's bedeviled like Obama complained about this too. Right. And yeah. I think it, it infects a lot of our policy conversations outside of foreign policy, because you have the left who's always like, well, look at Europe, they have these great social welfare systems. And, and I'm like, yeah, cause they're not paying for their defense. Like we are. <laughs> and so I think that this is an issue that should continue. And I hope it actually, I hope, I don't know that it will under a potential Joe Biden administration, but I hope that it does because it's something that has to be addressed. Like these, these countries are riding high on the largesse of, of the Americans. And, you know, obviously we have a role to play globally in, in, in ensuring the defense uh, you know, of our allies, but man, they have just been free riding for a little bit too long. And I think they're on notice now. Okay. So uh, back and way up and going globally, the last four years, uh, lots of disruption norms have been thrown out the window on a regular basis. There are no uh, norms anymore. There, norms there are, are no more norms. I think we're, <laughs> I think in the next six or eight weeks, we're going to get rid of whatever norms are left. Uh, so, uh, and then, uh, you know, January 20th, Joe Biden's going to become president. He's from way back. It's a guy who's been in Washington longer than almost anybody. Uh, he's had um, a lot of advisors around him for a very long time. Uh, Well-known group of folks in a way, couldn't be more different than Donald Trump coming in with a whole new group and disrupting everything. It seems, I think it's fair to say that that Joe Biden's not a disruptor. He's going to reestablish norms. How, how do you, like, if you were to give him advice on what to keep from the last four years, what would you, what would you say to the president-elect? Well, <laughs> the first thing that I would say, not even about what to keep, is just based on the people I've seen that are around his potential list of advisors, it is like the Obama reboot. And I just want to be like, dude, no, no, Susan Rice, no, Samantha Power. I don't know if you're considering Ben Rhodes, but don't do it. Like, just, you know, no to that. Um, I think where Biden needs to keep up the aggression, and to be honest, where I'm not, I don't think that he will, is China. I think, I don't 
I think there was a famous point in one of the debates where he just refused to say China was actually an adversary. So, but I think he's going to have to keep his eye on the ball there. And, you know, I think he, he's much more of an interventionist than I think Trump was. I think he's just naturally disposed to that, right? He grew up in this blob, right? He's a part of it. And I would say, you know, the country has changed. The country has changed from even 10 years ago where it was with its posture toward how the U.S. comports itself uh, across the world. And it is incumbent upon him as a president of all America to recognize that. You know, this isn't, again, this isn't the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This is like, you know, for all the marbles. And so if you want to be, uh, if you want to be where the country is, and Trump was very good at having his finger on the pulse of where a lot of the base of the country was. And even Democrats, I think, are, are he had his finger with them on this. Biden has got to respond to this. Restrained foreign policy is where the country is and what needs to be reflected from the White House. Grant, uh, over to you, buddy. What if, what's, the, what's the best question I haven't asked Rachel so far? Earlier in the conversation, you also mentioned that, uh, that politics is how Americans speak. And in this most recent election, though, foreign policy played basically no role. It was barely a conversation about it in the debates, in the general or at the primary level. And uh, if elections are, are kind of rarely focused on foreign policy when it's not directly about a war and polling not looking really great right now, how do we actually know uh, what the pulse of the voter is saying? Yeah, no, it's a fair question. And, you know, to your point, foreign policy is not like a, a ballot box mover, right? It's not it's not a base motivator. So it's not what gets people to the polls. But I do think, you know, we've been at specific executions of our foreign policy long enough that the base has made it or the voters have sort of made themselves made, made their kind of feelings plain on things like Afghanistan on things like even drones right like the excessive use of drones like people just in in polls that have now been conducted over you know 15 20 years polling has been pretty consistently going down for certain ways in which we execute our foreign policy and and again a, a really clear way to get a sense for where the country is on these issues is to make members of Congress vote on them, right? You want to put something in the zeitgeist, put it on the Senate floor, put it on the House floor. You know, it's kind of like putting your finger finger in the air and like seeing what happens. Let them, let them offer amendments. I mean, novel, <laughs> novel concept. But yes, <laughs> the Senate hasn't seen an amendment in like eight months. But yes, again, this is how... That is also a function of our politics, is the is the body politic voting in a representative government and seeing how the people respond. All right, Rachel, uh, I got to say, I, th I thought I knew you before the podcast. I looked at your bio. It turns out you worked for one of my all-time favorite members of Congress, Don Mad Dog Manzullo, yes. Republican of Illinois. <laughs> what is he doing now? Do we know? Yes, the Mad Dog. He was my very first boss on Capitol Hill back in 2006. He's doing great. He is fully retired, hanging out with his grandkids on Lake Mead, um, has a house awesome. there. Yeah. Calls, he still calls me on my birthday. <laughs> so yeah, he's doing great. Fantastic. Good to hear. Uh, Rachel, thanks a lot for doing this. This was a great conversation. Uh, really appreciate your, uh, your sharing your views with us today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Really had fun. Thank you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. 
If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for engineering and Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for being our producer, director, and ombudsman. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.